Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming back to Real Leaders. I'm Sue Heilbronner, your host, and Real Leaders is the podcast that brings the story behind the story of some of the most authentic, innovative leaders I know. Now, before we jump in with this week's episode, I'm going to ask again, please, if you like this show, if you've listened to more than one, if you're still listening after this first 30 seconds of intro, please review the show on iTunes. It matters a bunch. I'm psyched that we're joined today by a longtime friend, Robin Nolan, who's the CEO of WonderPress. And you'll hear all about WonderPress from Robin. Robin, thanks for being here. Thanks, Sue. I'm excited to be here. Great. So just in a couple sentences, tell us a little bit about what WonderPress is so people have context for hearing more about you. Sure. Well, in a really quick sentence, it's a cold pressed juice shop, but we're excited to offer a lot more than that. So we really see ourselves as like more of a QSR, like quick restaurant concept. Um, we're offering grab and go food. We've got a whole coffee bar concept. We do a ton of smoothies, which act as meals. And then we're doing the cold pressed organic juices and nut milks. And then in the wintertime, we offer broth. We do toast. And I think that's about it. <laughs> awesome. So it's funny that, you know, toast used to just be a throwaway item. But now, right. I mean, I, I live in Boulder. You live in Boulder. We both understand that toast means something more than just two pieces of bread slapped in a an Right. Now it's a menu category, not Got, just an item. Yep. Got it. I love that you're defining that as a category. That's fantastic. Where is WonderPress? In downtown Boulder, Colorado. Awesome. So, Robin, the way we start all Real Leaders podcasts is I ask my guest to give me their two-minute life story. In your case, I want to hear three minutes because you don't have the most typical background. Well, three minutes still sounds short, but let me give it my best. Um, Grew up here in Boulder, Colorado. Awesome family. Kind of a Brady Bunch. Five siblings, godparents, step-parents, biological parents, just an awesome community went to Shining Mountain Waldorf School and really benefited a lot, I think, from the Waldorf education and just how much I was exposed to there from the arts to farming to cooking to just a little bit of everything, it felt like, and a really amazing core friend group that I stayed with for 12 plus years through school. Also spent a decent amount of time in Missouri growing up every summer because both of my parents were from there. So my mom's side of that story is a small rural farm where we spent time helping with the animals and the vegetable gardening and doing a lot of homemade cooking. I mean, she cooked at home all the time, but I do have really fond memories of being on the farm and making fresh peach cobblers and things like that. And then on my dad's side, spending time in St. Louis and really getting kind of a bug for sports. So my granddad was really really into the Cardinals. Everyone in St. Louis really is. Cardinals are big. You know that. You've come to a game. So I kind of have this great mix of influences coming from my mom and dad when it comes to farming and food and nutrition and the way that food brings people together in community. And then also this love of being active and sports and competitive. And there's a real need to, to bring good food along with the performance of sports. So I went to Shining Mountain High School, and I got really into athletics in high school. And that's when my dad and I started geeking out on nutrition, and it became kind of an obsession for me to um, study that extracurricularly, as well as working out before school. And I wanted to go play college basketball, but that didn't end up happening. I wasn't good enough, primarily, but I was going to play on a D3 team and ended up blowing out my knee. But yeah, so I went to Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. I was planning to go into the medicine industry in some way. I was thinking doctor, then I was thinking PA. I spent a chunk of time in Africa 
volunteering with pediatric cancer primarily, but that wasn't the most important piece. It was just being around people who genuinely needed help. And it actually got me thinking I wanted to go into infectious disease, but then came home and the practical steps of getting into the medical industry required some experience, paid work here, spent a couple of years in a hospital and kind of fell out of love with like the medical industry as we know it, because it was more focused on sickness intervention. And I realized that I'm so much more about health coaching and like lifestyle and proactive and way more contact with people than maybe just a visit a year or an emergency room contact. So I also asked after graduating college coached basketball at the high school that I went to did that for seven years. And that was hugely formative for me. Um, just kind of the leadership experience of coaching, getting the best out of other people, the management and just kind of refining my, my, my niche, like the way that that, that I've become so focused on people's effort more than like the actual outcome. That's directly out of coaching years where um, there's a nonprofit called Positive Coaching Alliance and Phil Jackson's big with them. And we focused on that kind of protocol a lot when I was coaching. And it's all about the Elm model, model excuse me, effort, learning, and mistakes. Like mistakes are great. Go out and make mistakes instead of criticizing mistakes constantly, which just freezes us all, like commend them. You took a chance. You made a mistake. You learned something. You put in the effort. Like that's a win on all fronts. So anyway, I think coaching definitely has had a huge impact in my career. And then in order to be a coach, I had to pay rent. And so I spent 10 years, this is during the hospital time, but I was also in the hospitality industry in a lot of different ways and the food industry and working as a chef and a waitress and this and that. And I was kind of all over the place. But what I didn't realize is how perfectly I was putting eggs in my basket to be able to draw on later to be in a kind of health-focused restaurant situation. And then I also studied at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition and got a degree in health coaching and did a deeper dive into nutrition with that school. So I think that's a good two or three minutes, right? It's a few more, but it was really excellent. I, I think one of the things that hearing your story all the way through in one sitting like that reminds me is, first of all, the importance of being able to do that. So if you're listening and if you're you know, coming out of college or in your first couple years of business, the ability to be able to weave your story looking back is really important. And I don't know if this is true for you, Robin, but it's definitely true for me. When, when I do that version of what I'm about, it sort of sounds like it was all really logical and it made perfect sense and everything <laughs> built right. on each other. And what I realized, and I've known you for a little while, so I think at various points, this may have been a thought you've had, which is while you're doing it, it doesn't always feel that organic or that linear and that you can just relax. You know, if you're coming up in your career, you can just calm down and trust that the next steps you're taking, if you're thinking about them, are usually going to build on the previous ones. And that by the time you get someplace in your life and look back, there's going to be a consistent thread. Yeah, no, I love that. And to add to that, just that there are moments where we're struggling and something's really hard and that that is such amazing experience. And then there's moments where we like find what just lights us up and we're in the groove and that's really important experience. And just to kind of keep seeing it as like this path that yeah is not linear it's oscillating but we're just learning and learning and learning and that's all in support of us living a better life you know so it's it's great awesome so a couple things i just want to catch 
Shining Mountain and the concept of a Waldorf school might not be obvious to some of the people who are listening. So quickly, just tell us what the Waldorf education thing is all about. Sure. Um, it originated in Germany like about 100 years ago. And one part that I really like is a focus on brain development. So for young kids, instead of getting them thinking really analytically at a young age, there's a lot more like movement and story and just the way that learning happens is different. So I didn't learn how to read until I was in third grade. And that sounds really late. <laughs> but you catch up because your brain's ready to learn that. And so in the years where other kids might be reading, I was knitting and doing watercolor painting and baking and just doing a bunch of other things, developing other parts of my brain. Um, and I thought that was really cool. There was a moment there where I was really insecure, like, I can't read and I'm in fourth grade and I'm still learning. But then I caught up and everything's fine now. And I look back and I'm like, wow, what a rich learning experience. And then another thing I would point to is that there's a pretty firm curriculum that's really diverse. And so you're learning about, you know, in third grade, there's a big focus on Hebrew Judaism. It's really fascinating. Then you move into like Norse mythology, and then you're doing the Greeks, and then it's kind of jumping all over the place. And so you get this really rich, I don't know, just experience of different, I think, curriculum activities that not all schools are always incorporating. There's a really strong focus on the arts, and we have really amazing, it's a private school, and so there's a lot of, you know, access to wonderful art materials and things. Um, and then in high school, I think one of the biggest benefits for me was just the size being small um, and how wonderful the teachers were and how much they really cared about me as an individual. But again, there's a structured curriculum. And so you don't, you don't focus as much on one thing that you're good at early. You kind of have to keep doing everything. And, and I think that really served me um, to help me, again, just kind of gather more experience and talents. So that's great. That's fantastic context for who you are. I think, has it ever occurred to you that if you had come up through public schools all the way through high school, you might've been a better basketball player? Yeah, I think so. But you know, part of it was that I was so obsessed with being amazing. And I was like, never going to meet my own standard that like I was my own downfall. It wasn't that I didn't put the time in and that I wasn't like an actual kind of natural athlete. It was more my type A, like perfectionism and getting into this like negative spiral. And like, I don't think that public school would have prevented that. So uh, that's know, a great, point. it is what it is. That's a really great <laughs> point. I mean, if knitting didn't cure you of that, probably public school wouldn't have. Right. Cause so. yeah, you make a lot of mistakes when you're learning to knit. You got to like learn <laughs> to just go with the flow. <laughs> um, so you couldn't read, but you always had really good sweaters. Uh, in second grade, go. which is good. So you mentioned your Brady Bunch family. And I wonder, as you think about sort of the broad concept of family that you've grown up with, because that uh, your parents weren't together fairly early in your life. You can answer that. But I, th I think I know that. And yeah, so, no, I was just a summer romance baby. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So how has that been positive for your evolution and development as a leader and just as a person? I mean, one thing you alluded to this, but your family isn't your family, which is a broad term in your case, is incredibly mm -hmm. close. Yeah. I mean, I guess the feeling of just being raised by a village applies to the way that you see the world, right? There's people everywhere that want to be helpful and want to connect with other humans and want to offer their expertise and their services and I think that when I was in kind of a, my first entrepreneurship position, 
just like that understanding that there's so many mentors out there and there's so many people that I can ask questions to. It's not just like I have my parents and my teachers. Um, I think that really served me. Um, and just the different influences coming in because, you know, each one of my family members has a different flavor. And so just having that big, broad circle and all that love and, you know, learning to work with differences in a family context from an early age. And then, you know, I would add to that that my mom is amazingly brilliant with group work. She teaches leadership trainings. And so the way that she helped navigate different relationships um, and really supported me, like especially through high school and college in developing my own skills, like in relationship, um, you know, that, that was huge. So. Thanks. Is there any part of growing up from that context in a slightly atypical, I mean, maybe now everything's atypical, but is there any part of it you think you had to overcome or really confront as you entered adulthood? Um, well, I want to make everybody happy. <laughs> and so I think learning to say no and learning to take care of myself, it was a particular opportunity to learn that when there's a lot of people that want to love on me and want my time and, you know, want to do things or whatever. So I think that that, that might have been an opportunity for growth. So just like, geez, there's so many different people to spend time with and to please. I'm a three in the Enneagram. I like to, you know, please other people <laughs> and achieve things. So, um, yeah, I think if I had had less people that were wanting my time, I wouldn't have been stretched as thin. But, you know, with that has come a lot of learning. And I still stretch myself thin, don't get me wrong. But um, it's definitely something I'm working on. So. All right, Robin, that's awesome, awesome. So at some point, you're deciding that the medical profession isn't your thing. And somehow you turn to launching a business around cold-pressed juice. Can you give us the year that you came up with that and how you got to that decision and with whom? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 2013, it was three girlfriends, childhood friends, that launched the business. I want to say it was a year or two prior to that. We had had a girls' reunion in Southern California, uh, just spending you know a couple of days together at the Ace Hotel, essentially. Um, but we had visited some cold-pressed juice shops. Moon Juice in Venice Beach was a particular inspiration. And just recognizing that <laughs> like we were so drawn to that brand and so drawn to, in general, juice and beverages that we could hang out around and kind of make a point of our day as we were just enjoying each other's company and catching up and that that wasn't available in Boulder. And so I know that like kombucha on tap is popping up and you can always get an iced tea somewhere, but it felt like in Boulder, if you wanted to socialize with people, it was like, do I need another coffee or is it time for beer? And, you know, a lot of times I was trying to get up early or doing some athletic endeavor and I didn't want to have cocktails late at night. So I just wanted a way to socialize. That was a big draw for us. And that was why we really thought Boulder could use a juice shop. But the, the other piece is that if, if juice is done right and food um, is prepared, you know, with certain, in my mind, principles, guiding principles around nutrition, then that is such a service to people because in the restaurant world, it's so common that the focus is on staying in business. That's the number one rule. And it's it's so key to have those cogs in place. And it's really challenging to buy nice ingredients and to still meet a price that like the market can bear. So it's so common that restaurants are not your most healthy choice compared to being able to prepare something at home. 
you know, it was probably good what a novice I was and how uneducated I was in that world. But it was like, we're going to make food with so much integrity and we're going to bring that to people and we're going to do the work of juicing that other people might not have time for and just serve a product that we believe in 100%. And, and I'm really proud to say that I do believe in our product still five years later, 100%. And we wouldn't serve it if if all of our values weren't flooding into it. And I think that we're impacting people's lives from like a health perspective and able to have that, you know, that education over the counter and, you know, and just benefiting people with all the vitamins that they're getting, right? So there's definitely a like two versions of cold press juicing. There's the CPG world where you're kind of pasteurizing and pressure processing the juice and selling it on like whole food shelves. And then there's more of the restaurant model where you juice and serve to people direct to consumer. And so we really believe in the quality of the direct to consumer juice. And we wanted the experience of interacting with people. We wanted to get to know our customer and we wanted to be actually brightening people's day with hospitality, not just putting a product in their hands. So we chose the restaurant route. I recall, I mean, we met fairly early on in your thinking about this project. And I said to you something that I say to an entrepreneur every now and then, if I'm right, I, I, I would have said it. If I didn't say it, it was only because I didn't know you very well. What I said is there are easy businesses, I think, and there are hard businesses and you picked a hard business. Did I say that to you? Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I remember it. And I've repeated it to my business partners many times because it was very wise advice. And it actually has helped me keep going, Sue. Those words, like through some of the hardest times, when I feel crazy for how hard it feels, it's like, hey, I knew. Sue told me on day one <laughs> that this was a hard business. And I still picked it. And I'm not crazy for struggling. It's okay to have a hard time in a hard business. And just keep going, like you'll get through it, you know. So it was actually really good that someone who I trust, like you, pointed out that it it was in fact a hard business. <laughs> it's interesting. So. I mean, and the purpose of that question wasn't a uh, I told you because uh, I knew you knew that because um, I've right. been to your uh, restaurant and it, I I, I want to put the term help. You, and very loosely, there was a day where I helped make juice. And this yeah, was after you ran the, the press. Yes, this <laughs> was, was after the day that I told you this was a hard business. And once I did that, I thought, holy moly, this business is seriously hard because it's like physically demanding. Who knew? When you describe kind of your approach to sports and how this part of you getting in your own way makes me think, well, of course you picked a highly demanding enterprise. That seems to make sense. Do, do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I love running around like when I'm lifting cases of vegetables that weigh 50 pounds, I like I'm in my happy place. You know, I got my good squatting form and I don't want to sit at a desk. And I actually for the last nine months really did sit at a desk a lot trying to clean up more of the business. And just recently I got back on the floor and that may or may not be my position in the company long term. But to run around with the staff and be physical I love that. I mean, I was much better at softball. That was like my family legacy, baseball and softball. And I chose basketball because I got to run around way more. Like I just have that energy and I need to get rid of it. So that makes sense. Uh, all right. So Robin, you decided you wanted to have a retail location, making a challenging business, even more challenging. And the first place you, you had, you had a false start, right? With location in Boulder. Can you just talk just briefly about that? Yeah. So we, chose a spot that, you know, we thought would be a really good location and it remains an empty warehouse building to this day. Um, we ran into a ton of challenges just trying to bring the building up to code and 
it's historic. And so there was just a lot of trouble with the city, essentially. Um, And our landlord got really frustrated and pulled out. But while we were in the process of trying to make that location work, we wanted to get the product to market and we wanted to start seeing some revenue. And we got really lucky and found this little kitchen, brand new clean kitchen where a juice shop had been for three months maybe and gone under. And so we jumped in there on a month to month lease and just did a pop-up shop. And that was so key given how little experience we had to start that slow and with such low risk, like really low rent, you know, month to month. It was almost like we were at a farmer's market, but we had a retail location and we ended up being there for an entire year. And then it was pretty serendipitous. The landlord pulls out of our other project our actual landlord in that month-to-month lease tells us that they found a long-term tenant and they give us notice all within days of each other. And it was like, well, maybe this juice concept is coming to an end. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, via some connections, our branding agency knew some people who knew some people. Anyway, we discovered that there's a possibility of going in in our dream location, downtown Pearl, and it was it was the very location that we had called the landlords years before over and over again. Like, hey, is this spot available? No, it's been taken. Hey, nobody's opening up there. Are you having any issues with your tenant? No, like it's just a slow build out. Everything's fine. Go away. So we had been wanting into that space and then we ended up there um, and we got some new amazing partners in the process. And so we, it was really, really special. All right. So if you've never been to Boulder... Uh, Robin referred to Pearl, which is sort of a walking mall. Uh, it's not a walking mall where Wonder is located, but it's very, you know, it's a block from a walking mall. It's just the center of a not that very big city. So really the heartbeat of a city. And and your yep. your initial location and your pop-up location were kind of 15 blocks out of that city. Not a lot of walk-by traffic to either of those. So a really, really different decision. And financially, I don't know, I know you were going to do a huge build out of the warehouse building, but a very material monthly rent difference to get into this prime real estate. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the rent tripled, but so did our revenue, like the moment we opened without any marketing. And then, you know, we continued to grow for a few years. And now seems like we may have (laughs) reached like a, a max amount of revenue for that space. But yeah, rent was much, much bigger. But I think we had enough traction and enough customers and enough practice making our product that that we weren't too nervous. We were pretty confident that we could handle the larger, more expensive downtown space. All right. Great. And I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, I'm not really glad to hear that you've maxed out on your revenue possibility period for a space, but that feels exciting uh, to me to have reached that point, which I imagine is a good point and it's crowded all the time. So for the uninitiated, and I'm barely initiated, explain the process of making non-pasteurized, relatively soon-served cold-pressed juice. Sure. So we're using 100% organic ingredients. We're buying a ton of them, right? They're coming in on pallets stacked taller than me uh, because each 16-ounce bottle that we serve has two to three pounds of that produce in there. So when you're juicing and pulling all the fiber out, (laughs) it takes a lot of vegetable. 
So um, we have a hydraulic cold press and the word cold is misleading. There's no like injection of cold. It's just that the machine doesn't really heat up the same way that other countertop juicers would. But the primary difference and what makes the juice coming off of this machine really special is less oxygen exposure. So the oxidation is what's going to turn a juice brown an hour after you buy it if you go get like a centrifugal juice made at a, you know, Whole Foods juice bar or something. So this juice is really pristine. It's ground up, the produce is ground up, and then it's pressed under about 2,000 pounds of pressure per square inch, and then it just waterfalls down. So it's definitely seeing some oxygen, you know, more than brewing beer or something at home, but way reduced, exponentially reduced exposure. And then we just get it bottled immediately, um, get it cold, and we sell it within a few days. And you know, the, the shelf lives vary depending on the pH, depending on a lot of things, but they're, they're good for a week or more, more. Most of these juices, we sell them a lot faster than that because we want people to actually be able to use us like a grocery store, walk in, buy juice for the week or have a home delivery for the week and, and then just keep it in their fridge and keep drinking it. And my dad definitely pushes the limit on the shelf life. <laughs> unlike anyone I've ever met, he'll be sipping on it two weeks later. And I'm like, you know, dad, it's better fresh. Like, why don't you drink it and then come get a new one? But anyway, you know, we really haven't had a lot of trouble with any kind of foodborne illness or anything like that, which is awesome because it's raw and it's unpasteurized. And so it takes extreme care to make sure that everything is washed and cleaned in an extraordinary way and then refrigerated and maintained at that temperature and sold fast. And to be managing a pre-made kind of product inventory, but with only a few days of shelf life is, is total insanity. That's where I think the business is crazy, is that like we're trying to guess how many hamburgers people are going to make. And we're not just prepping like the mayo and the patties and freezing them. Like we're, we have like a finished hamburger and we need <laughs> someone to come get it before it gets gross, you know? And like, you have to be looking at the weather constantly and, you know, just paying really close attention to the trends. Um, we're coming up on mother's day and graduation and I've gotten hosed two years in a row, not remembering what a big weekend that is. And got it this week. You know, we're, we're going to be staffed for it and we're going to be ready. I know your investors um, so, are happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's, you know, I think that's where, where it gets really tough is the shelf life. But again, to pressure process that and then have a juice that's good for 90 days that turns kind of brown when you process it, it's just not the same life giving awesomeness that yeah. our juice is. So and it definitely it's comes worth through. it. It definitely comes through in the product. So I, a couple things, just because if you're sitting there at home and you're wondering what a hydraulic juice press might be like, you might be thinking of your one on your kitchen counter. And there was one thing that really struck me, two things that struck me as different. Number one, there's an arm and you feed the produce inside this giant tube and you kind of have to, at some points, press the produce harder into the juice press, which is not really the reason you have really good biceps, Robin, and you probably don't do this very much anymore, but you used to, because uh, you started with good biceps. But uh, it, it's quite a physical activity. That struck me. Yep, yep. The second thing is there's a bunch of, you called it fiber, what that means is other stuff other than juice that's in produce that you sort of have to take out and and put in a place and clean the filters and put it back in. And that's that's a, a Megillah as, as in my Yiddish roots. Would, would, it really is a Megillah. It's a huge process. 
that brings up the idea of green and how you guys think about sort of end-to-end -end recycling at the company. And you've done a couple things, I think, that are worth mentioning. So can you mention those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the fiber is, you know, sometimes people ask us like, why would we want to pull fiber out? Like, isn't fiber good for you? And it's like, yeah, absolutely. Don't stop eating a salad. Um, just add the juice because it's going to soak through your stomach lining and just give you like an IV drip of nutrients. And it's better than a Coca-Cola, but still eat your salad. Um, but yeah, when we have that fiber left over at the end, it's not trash. Um, in the case of ginger, there is so much spice and nutrition left in there that we like to brew a lot of it into tea or, you know, I'm thinking about packaging it because it makes such a good tea that I keep wanting to dehydrate it and take it home. And it's like, why haven't we been distributing this to our customers? Because ginger tea is amazing and we could sell a nice affordable ginger tea. We donate pulp to farms. There's, um, goats and pigs and, you know, various other animals that love eating apple pulp and different greens. We also put pulp into our broths that we keep simmering for 24, 48 hours. So all of that time with beet pulp and carrot pulp is just going to pull every last molecule out of that pulp um, that the juicing certainly didn't get everything out with the liquid. Um, we are starting to bake more and more. So making muffins and things like carrot muffins with carrot pulp. And we often add some fresh vegetables as well. But to have a base of these foods be the recycled matter, um, because everyone's looking to add fiber to their diet. So we certainly don't want to compost it. I mean, I loved your grand opening that you actually brought some goats to the front of the store, <laughs> uh, just to highlight the fact that a lot of the stuff was being eaten by local animals and who are, you know, it's like the best food they get, pure organic. You guys are buying. Especially in the produce. winter. Yeah, yeah there's right. no, there's no grazing. So and the bottle program, just talk a minute about that. Yeah, um, we made the choice to do glass and then to take the bottle back and to clean it sanitize it, reuse it. Um, so that is a huge labor of love, but it feels so good. We started actually with plastic and, you know, with our very small sales at the beginning, it was disheartening to be receiving that many plastic bottles and just putting them out in the world and carrying them out to the recycling, just, you know, with everything that's going on in our world with plastic bottles and just in general plastic getting into our foods and into our bodies. It just didn't feel right. And so when we switched to glass, it felt like we really started to to hit our groove when, when it comes to the best product and being as sustainable as possible and believing in what we were doing. So we charge a dollar and then people bring the bottle back to us and they get their dollar. Yeah. And um, we see 65% of those bottles back, which is incredible. It's like there are dishes that are just out circulating <laughs> in the world. I think um, it's incredible that 35%, I mean, I see them at yoga classes filled with water. They're very beautiful bottles, so people keep them. And that doesn't bother you. I love that you focus on the 65%. I'm like, really? 35% of your bottles don't, don't bring them back, back for a dollar? Right. Um, well, you know, somebody like takes it up on their veil ski trip and then they're going straight to the airport or whatever. I make up stories about like how it was just impossible to get the bottles back to us. But yeah, actually, a lot of them I think are sitting on a, people's shelves that's waiting. A funny, mar yeah, they're great for storage. That's a great marketing concept, though, to ask people. It's sort of like, what's it called? Like flat Fred? just to photograph their WonderPress bottles in action out in the world. That oh, I love that. Yeah, that show us what your bottle's cute. doing. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So let's talk and about it's great marketing, too, just to interject, like that people have that bottle under their nose. You know, that's like what coupons are, right? You open your wallet and you're like, you're reminded that you have a dollar off here. It's like people line up these 
bottles, you know, in the, near their recycling or on their windowsills, like ready to take them back or they're clinging around in their back of their car. And it's like, you know, we didn't we didn't do it for the marketing, but there's no question that there's this constant reminder under people's nose that they should get back into wonder because they need to return their bottles. And sometimes people are like, yeah, I'll take the cash. Like, here's 25 bottles. But rarely. It's usually like, and while I'm here, why don't I get a latte and, you know, just get my money off of the latte. So if, if you want to take a look, a closer look at wonder, uh, go to wonderpress.com. That's the URL, right, Robin? It's .co, actually. .co. But if you Google it, you should be able to find it. Yeah, Google, or the right. Instagram is wonder underscore juice. Thanks. So you'll see pictures of these bottles. They're actually fairly unique. So they're marketing that way as well, just having other people see them. All right, I want to hit on the who uh, and the how you got into this location. You alluded to some partners that came in when you embarked on the Pearl Street location and there are other people that have come into this business that you may not have planned on from the beginning. So can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, sure. Um, so it was three childhood friends that started it and we ran it for the first year of business. And that was about two years after really founding the company. Um, and then when we got into our Pearl Street location, there was a company like a restaurant that had closed down there. But some of the investors in that restaurant were, you know, basically had the space and they were really interested in our juice. And we the a downtown Boulder lease comes with, you know, about a two hundred thousand dollar price tag just to get the lease, right? Money that we did not have. And so it worked out really well to give up some equity in order to get that location and also to partner with really experienced, wise business owners um, who've been able to help support the business and mentor us. And then another piece of that was Big Red F Restaurant Group and Dave Query. It's a restaurant group that has three concepts right near there. Um, and, you know, multiple restaurants throughout Boulder and Denver um, and even into Kansas City. So a lot of restaurant specific experience there. You know, he he really agreed that juice would be a good concept to add to the block. And um, so everybody kind of got on board and, and they were really partners that we wanted and, and, you know, they wanted to invest. So it worked out brilliantly. And I have the pleasure of knowing Dave. Uh, so yes. while you're looking for the bottle design of, uh, at WonderPress, go, go search Dave Query or BigRedF.com. Um, this guy's been in restaurants since he was 18, and that's at least a couple years ago. Uh, what was it like to have someone like Dave Query, that level of sophistication about restaurants, three decades worth of it or so, maybe two decades? I don't want to dime you out, Dave. But what was it like to have the vote of confidence of somebody like that? You know, I don't know that it registered for me how incredibly lucky we were, you know, in that moment to be actually partnering with Dave. I think it's become more and more apparent as I see him in action and, you know, hear his wise words. So, yeah, I don't I don't think I was like too starstruck or anything, but I will say that my learning curve, you know, I think I crammed into three years, like some experience and learning that it would be hard to manifest in a decade but thanks to Dave, like holding me accountable and pointing things out and, you know, cracking a whip sometimes like what the heck is going on here that just ca catapulted me into like figuring things out and, you know, finding finding the way to fix it in a way that would have never happened organically. So he really catalyzed Wonders progress and, and my learning in a huge way. Yeah, my guess is that's been a real win for all of you. But that that's that was a great partnership. Talk about the growth and how you guys have been thinking about growth 
from this one unit from, say, three years ago to today? Yeah, well, I mean, the dream is definitely to have more units. Again, there's there's growing on store shelves. We're not going to go down that road per se. There's also ways to, you know, distribute the juice without retail locations. So we are putting a little emphasis right now, actually, for the remainder of 2018 on increasing our delivery and our office catering and our wellness packages and like subscriptions. People don't always want to find parking in downtown Boulder to get their product for the week, but they do want a couple green juices in their fridge and they want the fresh made nut milks as coffee creamers. So I think that we have a huge opportunity without paying more rent to you know, drive sales that way. So that's the immediate future. And then long term, you know, as long as we can really prove that the concept works and that it can be profitable while holding on to all of these really high standards that are so important to us, um, once we feel really secure in like the business model and the profitability, then I think there's so many neighborhoods in Denver that would have the same response as downtown Boulder. So that's a good place for us to start. And then beyond. There are some big juice concepts that, you know, were very similar to us in terms of having maybe a commissary kitchen and multiple locations and serving fresh juice and being restaurants that have closed in the recent past in the last year due to a slew of different reasons. But sometimes it's partly because of expanding a little too quickly and cutting some of those corners. So I think that there's a real place in the market for people to be introduced to juice at a low price point. You know, my relatives that might be in a rural part of the country, I love that they can have the pasteurized green juice and at an affordable price. Um, It doesn't bother me. It doesn't even feel like competition. It's fantastic. And then there's kind of this muddy middle area of like juice that, you know, isn't the cheapest, but it's also not the highest quality. And I really don't want to get sucked into becoming, you know, in that competition, in that realm. And then I think that there's the brands that are trying to do absolutely everything the best that they can. And you have to pay for it. I mean, you know, one of our juices is $10. Well, it ranges from like six up to 12. But um, I think that it's going to be really important for us to hold on to those values because when companies start to slip and cut corners because they don't understand you know, how, how many, how many values their customers share with them. And they think, oh, let's just save some cost here and save some cost there. That's when things slip and revenue slips. So my goal is to grow slowly and to do it carefully and to just enjoy the process, but definitely to expand and have other locations because I think the people want their juice. Awesome. <laughs> we want to bring it to them. Robin, talk just for a moment about the benefits and the challenges of founding a business with two very close schoolhood friends. Yeah, that's a great question. Benefit is the context and how well you know each other and your capacity to maybe have the hard conversations and to, I don't know, to to kind of just enjoy the ride because you're already friends and you enjoy each other. Um, I would say a challenge is that it's hard to define roles and really be honest when someone's not as good at something, right? So we always struggled kind of being like, hey, you are trying to do this. And that's great because we're like in this crazy startup mode, but you should hand that over. And we all said that to each other at one point or another about multiple things, but really just carving out like what you're good at and sticking to that and not getting in each other's business and kind of letting somebody have some autonomy over something that was challenging for us. I, I loved how, how, how we were all in at the beginning and 
you know, I could pick up the phone and call any of them at any point and talk about it. And I'm sure that's true, you know, for any company that's, you know, just a st still a passionate idea and you've got founders coming together. Maybe they were friends, maybe they weren't. But that's one thing that I miss kind of being in this CEO role. It's like a little bit more of a lone wolf role compared to just the energy of being with like a couple of friends and just pouring our hearts into something. Was it awkward to get to a place where there was one of you? Because you didn't start that way, where there was one of you as a CEO? I mean, it was it was challenging and it was long and it took a lot of a lot of hard conversations. And um, I think, yeah, awkward. It was it was like more painful, to be honest, just to to work that out because you have differences. And and I always saw all of our different opinions as a strength because we were checking each other and poking holes in things. And that was fantastic. And so if we all three decided on something, then it was really the right thing to do. But it got to a point where trying to run the business with three people who were friends and acting like we all had to come to the same decision. We didn't ever accept that our operating agreement said two out of three. So that the, the way that we were behaving was holding the company back because we were spinning our wheels and trying to make decisions and and so just to kind of push through that and realize, hey, this is inefficient and we're not going to go anywhere unless we can make that decision with a little bit less information and a little bit faster. And so, you know, and in some ways it's great. I think all three of us are really happy with our current situation. So it's, it's not like anything terrible happened. But, you know, one of my founders is still here in Boulder. She's one of my best friends. She's going to school to become like a, a counselor. She's doing counseling psychology. And that's that's like a passion of hers. And restaurant wasn't necessarily her background or her passion. So it's perfect in a lot of ways. And she's still guiding me and, you know, there for me to bounce ideas off. I love thinking out loud. So she really it makes up part of our board. So she's involved, but really more pursuing her passions, which is how it should be. Yeah, I'm sure a company founded from that structure could benefit from somebody with more counseling experience. That sounds like a really good thing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, all right, totally. so Robin, we always finish with a lightning round of questions. Great. What in, in these are fast. So, what's the most innovative product Wonder has introduced? Oh, that's a good question. Quick, quick, Robin, you don't uh, have time. Lightning I, I round. I love the broths that are based with all of our pulp. I think they're fantastic. What's the the flavor, the the version of it that's the best? I like our mushroom broth. We use a ton of medicinal mushrooms in there, and then we incorporate like our beet broth, so it's often like purple and just gorgeous. Okay, what's the number one selling juice? The Bright, which is a green juice that has a little bit of green apple, but it's mostly just cucumber and a bunch of greens. Also my favorite because nice. I need a little sugar. So that apple's big help. What's the biggest disaster recipe you ever tried? I remember when we were first experimenting with recipes, we were cheap and we rented the overnight shift at like a shared kitchen and we were juicing a bunch of roots and like radishes and stuff. And I think I made something that had like cabbage and burdock root and daikon radish. Oh. And I was drinking it so late at night on an empty stomach that I just immediately ran over the trash can and like started hurling. And I was like, I don't think that one's going to work. <laughs> That's Gross. the test. Fortunately, <laughs> yep. the test, the bar's gotten higher. Uh, what's yep. the future of toast? Are we going to still be eating avocado toast in three years? Yeah, I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but it's certainly not the most important part of our menu. It's not our focus. I don't think there's a lot of innovating to do there, but it's solid and it's delicious. And so I hope that we can continue serving it. In five years, are we all going to be eating turmeric multiple times a day? 
Well, I sure hope so. It's good for us. Especially and that can be in a pill form, you know, yeah. with a little black pepper mixed in. It doesn't have to be cold-pressed juice, but curcumin is pretty powerful medicine, and it's it's great to incorporate that if, if people aren't already. Yeah, and the pills are no fun at all, so go to Wonder Press and so get, go get, some get, juice, get, yeah. those, get those in juice. The last thing I want to know, I'm dying to know, do you remember anything about Norse mythology? Oh, totally. You do? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm constantly calling someone a Loki, and people are like, what do you mean by that? And I'm like, well, they're like a coyote. And they're like, what do you mean by that? I'm like, they're they're sneaky, and they're a trickster. I'm like, I can't <laughs> use the word Loki like it's a normal vocabulary. Or actually, my dog is named Odin, so that's a god. I didn't name him that, actually. My fiancé had the dog when I met him, but it's a great name. Or Thor, you know, and Thor's making comebacks in our in our movie scene now. So yeah, the Norse myths are alive, Sue. So if you're thinking <laughs> about school choices for your children, you're wondering about the benefits of Waldorf schools, you know a couple things. Number one, lots of good sweaters in second grade and really innovative dog names. I think that's a there good time go. for us to end, Robin. Great. We are so glad that you joined us today. Thanks for being an amazing guest on Real Leaders, Robin. Thanks for having me, Sue. You guys all know this, but Real Leaders is brought to you by Leadership Camp. Created by Merge Lane, Leadership Camp is a two and a half day deep dive into conscious leadership, building more self-aware leaders and helping to make great leaders extraordinary. Find out about our next scheduled camps for 2018 at mergelane.com or at leadership.camp. Thanks for being with us this time. Again, we'll see you at the next episode of Real Leaders. If you have comments, questions, or feedback, feel free to ping me at Tell Sue on Twitter. Have a great day, everyone.